This episode is brought to you by Book Thinkers. Do you want to reach more readers, grow your audience, and supercharge your impact? Well, at Book Thinkers, they believe the right books at the right time can change lives. Now, you have put serious time into researching, writing, and editing a book, and the idea of marketing can be deflating. Well, truth be told, it doesn't have to be. You've spent a lot of time writing your book for personal development because you want to help readers make positive changes and improve their lives. Where authors get stuck isn't writing or publishing. It's ensuring their target reader gets their hands on the finished book. That's where book thinkers come in. They have worked alongside hundreds of authors from first-time writers to best-selling authors to help get their book in front of the right reader. And those readers don't just read, they connect. For book thinkers, they help video production for authors, book reviews, podcast booking, and even social media management. Now, quick question. Are you ready to change more lives? Well, if you are, then you can go to www.bookthinkers.com and get more eyes on your books now. What do we actually know about the applications we use every day? Applications like Spotify, YouTube, or even PayPal. Well, few people are aware of PayPal's humble beginnings, despite the company being a behemoth today. And nowadays, PayPal is a household name. Its founders include some of the most well-known figures in the tech industry, including Max Levchin, Elon Musk, and Peter Thiel. Well, in this episode, we've invited an award-winning author and biographer, Jimmy Sunny. Jimmy has spoken about his books throughout the United States of America at organizations big and small, including universities, conferences, and companies such as Talks at Google. His latest book, The Founders, The Story of PayPal and the Entrepreneurs Who Shaped Silicon Valley, was a debut bestseller and has earned praise from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the New Yorker, and the economies, among many others. Well, without further ado, let's welcome this amazing gentleman into the podcast. Woohoo! Yeah! Jimmy! Thank you you so much for having me. Thanks for the enthusiastic intro. That was awesome. Oh, you're most welcome, man. Well, it's, you know, it's really my honor and pleasure to have you here. And of course, you know, I'm really thankful for Book Thinkers as well for introducing both of us to, you know, make this happen you know without them i don't think i would have uh, be able to interview you and get this story out to many many people around the world not just in america but also singapore and other parts of asia as well and uh, how have you been man i've been good i've been really good and i you know it's i appreciate it's it's interesting i there are a lot of people in singapore who have reached out to me who have read the book and mm-hmm. I guess like there was some big bookstore display there too. So it's always like fun. one of the fun things for authors is you, you'd never know where your book is going to like take off. And for me, it's right. been interesting, but like India, Africa, like they've gotten really excited about the book. And so it's always fun. Like it's more, it's almost more fun to, to see that effect where it's like happening abroad than it is if it's just in the United States. Yeah, I know. Right. I mean, like, uh, you know, when I told my followers that I'll be having you on the podcast as well, 
one of them even uh, immediately sent me a, a question for me to ask you, which I'll be asking you later on. And she also would like to host you on her podcast as well. So uh, we'll see. That's we'll see amazing. How we can arrange that. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I would love that. I mean, I you know, it's it's funny too because mm-hmm. like it's it's one of the things that I think this story has a universal quality to it because it's really not about Silicon Valley necessarily. It's about startup entrepreneurship and it's about creating new things in the world, right? And that's right. happening like all over the world. And so it's it's been cool to see how people. Like, you know, I did this session with, it was like a group in Rwanda. I flew to Guatemala to do something. It's been really great to see that some of the principles and ideas and stories kind of resonate beyond just, you know, a few zip codes in California. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great book. That's why it's known to so many people anywhere and everywhere. And when when they read it, they would like to, you know, reach out to you and they would definitely go and Google you and find you on LinkedIn and Instagram and all so that they can actually tag you and say, hey, I'm reading your book. I enjoy reading your book and all. And they might even highlight them and and showcase the people that, hey, this is a good part of the book that, you know, I want people to read. I want people to actually know about this. So, yeah. And and, um, man, um. Jimmy, can you share with the audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my name is Jimmy. I live in New York, uh, in Brooklyn. I, you know, one of the, like, I, I have this awesome sort of side hustle sort of where I write books. Um, and I've written a few different books. I've also ghostwritten for people, meaning I'm the writer, but sort of their name is on the cover. Um, I, my, my latest book was this crazy adventure of figuring out where PayPal came from. And the reason in some ways that people might be familiar with the story is not because of PayPal. You probably have used PayPal and you're thinking like, what's so interesting about a payment services app? Um, the, the more interesting thing for me was that it was where, I mean, the founders of YouTube, the founders of Tesla, SpaceX, LinkedIn, Yelp, Palantir, like early money into basically every startup you know, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, David Sachs, Max Levchin, Reid Hoffman, they all worked at PayPal between the years 1998 and 2002. And so it was this really interesting thing. Like, what are the odds of that? You know, like, well, how crazy is that that one place had all these people? And so that was my my latest book. But, you know, the, the you asked sort of a personal question. I, you know, I like authors actually like live pretty boring lives. Like I kind of do speech writing and ghost writing and I do writing of books and ideation on books and all this stuff. And then I have a have a seven-year-old daughter and that's about my entire life. Like, it's like, actually my life is pretty tame in other ways. Um, and so, but that's me, I, you know, and I've, for me, it's like, I love, people ask like, why do you write books? I'm like, well, I always loved books as a kid. It was just like a thing that I did, you know, as I was like always reading all the time. And then I was lucky enough to do a couple projects. Those projects went well, and then it kind of grew from there. Oh, nice. Wow, okay. So, well, interesting. I mean, like, uh, I remember that you were actually a journalist as well, right? Uh, for Huffington Post, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I would, I would sort of, it's probably a stretch to say I was a journalist because I think journalists have a really specific thing that they do. I'm more of a historian. Like my books are, I use some of the tools of journalism. I interview people, I report, I look for details. 
but I, I don't, I think it would be like an insult to journalists to say that I was one of them. Um, I'm okay. more like I, all my books are history, right? So the books I right. write happen in the past. And I like that. I get, for me, I was always like a history nerd growing up. I really like, you know, just different, like there's like a bunch of different authors that I love. Almost all of them write histories. And so for me, this was like more about being a historical writer. You could say sort of a writer of like narrative nonfiction, um, which is kind of my, my thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, awesome. I mean, like, uh, based on this book, the founders, when I read it, it was like, man, it's really great. I'm, I'm, well, I, I really love to read this and I will definitely read, read it again, um, later on as well. And, uh, you know, before we actually dive into the main focus of our interview, we would like to get to know you a bit better. Can you actually tell us a bit about your backstory? Like, how did you become an author? Yeah, no, I'm happy to I'm happy to share it because I think for a lot of people it seems like it's this weird weird profession and it sort of is. But um, <laughs> I was working at McKinsey and Company uh, as my first job. McKinsey is like a global management consultancy, and I mean my honest thing is I was like I was I the work was fine, but I was kind of bored and I was looking for something to do like on the side. Mm -hmm. And so I started with a friend of mine, Rob, a friend of mine from college. We started working on this book proposal for the book that eventually became Rome's Last Citizen, which was my first book. It was about an ancient Roman senator named Cato. If your listeners know the name Julius Caesar, Cato was Julius Caesar's arch enemy. And so we wrote this proposal and I basically was like working on it at like nights and weekends and stuff. It sold to a publisher, which we were really surprised it sold. And then... <laughs> We basically just like did that on nights and mornings and weekends while working. He was working. I was working. And so then that book led to my next book, which was called A Mind at Play, uh, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age. And then that book led to the founders. And so at each case, like just, you know, my story is basically I would see a book that I thought should exist. And when it didn't exist, I was just like, okay, somebody should write this and I should be that somebody, right? Um, and it was kind of like that. Like, that's how a lot of these projects come to be. You just see something and you're like, wait, there's no book on, you know, whatever the subject is. Like, okay, I should go do that. And that's kind of how I've approached my entire writing career. And like, it's one of those nice things because every three to four years, I get a chance to like go really deep on a subject and then walk mm -hmm. back and like kind of tell other people what I learned. And it's the greatest, I mean, it's for me, it's like, I know it's a side hustle, but it's the greatest side hustle there is. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, writing what you love and, you know, letting people around the world know about not just your presence as an author, but also the presence of, this, of the stories behind a tech company, a, a kingdom, a, a, a community and all this other stuff that you have actually written and, and even a person um plot shannon well which which was pretty interesting as well and that's what you actually spoke about at talks at google as well um one of the talks i would say and uh yeah it's really interesting and really impressive i mean like you have to write like you know people write theses and you are writing <laughs> a book and it's like damn a lot a lot of 400 plus pages of knowledge wisdom and of course uh people's knowledge and wisdom as well from interviews man it's really amazing well thank um, you that's great i mean oh. you know i think i think the other thing to remember is that mm -hmm. um 
it's it's also just uh, you know it sounds like work and it is work there's a lot of work that's involved but it's also really fun you know like i think i think the thing about writing books that's a little bit different from other formats is that you live with a subject for two to five years in my case with founders it was six years but like you really do it becomes like a part of your life almost right and so you keep doing this thing, you keep doing this thing, you keep learning, you keep learning, you keep researching, you keep asking questions, but you get to you get to do something for a long period of time and invest in it for a long period of time. And I know not all books are written that way. I have plenty of friends who do books much, much more quickly than I do. But I think that like actually being able to live with a subject for a few years is great, right? It, it's like right. how I'm sure your episodes today are better than the first episodes of the podcast you did, right? Because you learn more along the way. I'm about to start yeah. another book project and I just, I feel so much like I'm like, oh, I know exactly what to do now, right? But I also get to live with whatever that subject is for this extended period of time and basically just become an expert on whatever it is. And that's like, that's really fun. It means like my, my, my quote unquote job, you know, as an author is never going to be the same thing over a period of, let's say 20 years. Like I'll probably have four or five different subjects where I go super deep and then come back and then go super deep and then come back. And I, I don't know, for me, it's like, it's like the best parts of college without the cost, right? It's like, you get to learn mm -hmm. all this stuff and you don't have to pay anybody to do it. Yeah, I know. Right. I mean, looking at the founders, for example, man, if I have to go for a degree and, and you know, I have to learn from uh, probably what uh, business management course or whatever, man, I need to buy a lot of take textbooks and not just that, I have to pay for my school fees, which amounts to what, uh, 50 grand, 60 grand or whatever amount that is in our, any country that we are staying in. And man, it's not gonna be easy. And they have all these tests, and you have to cram all the knowledge inside you. And unless we are, you know, like Jim Quick, we can remember things so easily and fast. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's definitely, definitely a journey, especially when you say, "Wow, well, it takes you what six years to actually compile everything." Man, um, I'm pretty sure, you know, when you are actually writing, uh, as it as as the journey grows from the first book to this book, I'm pretty sure you have met some mistakes, met some failures as well. So do you have a favorite failure of yours and how has that failure or parent failure set you up for later success? It's a great, you know, it's a great question. What I would say is, um, let me let me do two answers to the question. Sure. One is what we'll call it macro failures and then micro failures. So writing is actually a process of a lot of micro failures. So I'll give you an example. The book right now, the one you hold in your hand is like around 170,000 words total with endnotes and everything. Right. But I actually wrote like 450,000 words of draft material. And there's a ton of stuff I wrote that was just not included in the book, either because it was factually inaccurate. It was like not appropriate for the story. It didn't fit chronologically. I couldn't find evidence to confirm things, whatever it was. So I have this like big you know, almost 300,000 words that I've written that just like never, like, it's like a mistake. You could call it a mistake, right? Because it's mm -hmm. like, oh, like that wasn't stuff that's going to ever be seen, right? And so you you have that level of micro mistakes. You also have these like kind of every day when you're working on a chapter, you never feel like you're like always like, oh, this paragraph stinks. 
this word isn't right, this sentence is weird, et cetera. So you just sort of make all these mistakes every day. And then you go back and you fix them and you go back and you fix them and you go back and you fix them. So there's kind yeah. of like, like mistakes are a big part of the writing process, but they are, they're like, without it, you don't have anything. Nobody writes a sentence. I mean, that, nobody that I know writes a sentence and it's like, oh, everything's perfect. Let's go to publish. You know, like it's not going to happen. <laughs> and so, yeah. so that's that. I would say macro, you know, there are, I wrote this proposal for a biography of Bruce Lee. Like I spent a lot of time like diving into Bruce Lee and oh, yeah. I thought he was super interesting and I wanted to do this thing. And I, I learned later through my publisher that somebody had already been working on a Bruce Lee biography, but it wasn't out and there were some delays oh. with it. And then my publisher wanted to buy that biography. And they said, listen, we'll still support you if you want to do your project, but just know there's this other project happening. But I probably spent like two or three months like just working on this proposal for this other book. And then that never happened. You could call that a mistake. I guess it is. I mean, it's a little bit of one, but like it's sort of weird to see it as a mistake because mm -hmm. in a way I got to learn about Bruce Lee for two or three months. I got to write another proposal, right? And learn how to do that. And so I would say there are all of these kind of projects that never happened or like roads not taken that in one, like kind of one version of them is that was a mistake. But again, I'm pretty careful about like, calling things a mistake like you know even the big errors in your life you really do learn from and uh, for me that project taught me a lot about like making really quite certain that no one else is working on something kind of really kicking the tires to make sure i have something to say that i'm the right person to say it you know i the person who did that book spoke mandarin and was a martial artist and i was like okay like you should do that book you know like that's a good that's that's probably appropriate and but so I would say that's sort of a mistake. But again, it was like a macro mistake. The more interesting errors are the micro errors that you work to fix as you're writing. Right. I agree. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, uh, you know, when when it comes to writing martial arts book, for example, and you, probably next time, instead of writing Bruce Lee, you might want to write uh, what Donnie Yen or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think. I think that genre might be, I'm like, I'm good. I'm going to go do other things. But, you know, it was like, okay. it was one of those projects that like you sort of, what I would say is like the lesson from it is, you know, I don't even feel like that was wasted time, right? Like it was like one of those, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to read a lot. I'm going to understand stuff. And my instinct was right. I mean, that's the other thing is that there was a book. So it wasn't that like I was wrong about the need for a book. It was that my timing was wrong. And so that's like, for me, it was kind of like, oh, I made a mistake in spending all this time on this Bruce Lee thing. But the truth is, I also discovered like, okay, I was right. Some publisher wanted a book like this. So it was kind of like, you know, like a tuning fork, like you could yep. use a tuning fork to test if you're, if whatever, if like the sound of something is right. This was kind of like my book tuning fork was in good shape. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like, uh, well, Thankfully, you know, Simon Schuster, your publisher, said, okay, let's go with the founders. And it's very interesting. No one has talked about PayPal. No one has written about it. And you got the idea and said, hey, why not? Let's go and give it a try and um, give it your best shot and see how it goes. And man, that amount of effort that you put in, the amount of time that you put in, it has already given you a lot of fruits. That's why I, I, I'm really, you know, um, grateful that you're here to actually share with us, which we will be talking a lot more about that later on. And I'd like to ask you, right, I'm pretty sure while you're uh, building your career up as an author, right, and I'm pretty sure you have met a lot of, I would say, 
mentors, coaches that has helped you along the way. Can you share with us like what's the best piece of advice you've ever received from them? Oh, um, man, there's so many. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like hard to pick just one. Um, okay. Let's see. Uh, you know, I think that there's... Um, there was somebody, I have a co I had a coach that I worked with who is really excellent. Her name was Lauren Zander. And she helped me at the beginning stages of the book process. I was pretty nervous about it. I didn't know if this book would work. I didn't know if I could get access to people like Elon and Peter and all these people. And, you know, and, but, but more than that, I just like, didn't know like if it, I was just like, I had all these, all these issues like in my head about like, okay, I don't know if it's going to work, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things that she really drilled into me was, and this sounds so sort of simple, right? But she would, she would say like, I can teach you a lot of things, but I can't teach you to try, right? Like I can't teach you to like, just get up every day and work. Like I could teach you how to deal with confidence issues and anxiety and all of that stuff that's in your head, but I can't actually like just put your, you know, but in the chair and get you to wake up and do this. And she's like, and if you're not going to do that, then we should stop working together, basically, because like then it just shows that you're not committed to this. And I know it sounds like weird advice because it sounds really, really simple. But that's like actually the truth of a lot of work, at least writing work is you just sit down and do it, even if it's bad, even if it's frustrating, even if you're frustrated, you just sit and you do it. And it was like this weird moment where like, for some reason, the way she said it, she, she was, she said something like, I can't coach you to try. And she was like, like, it was just like this, like <laughs> the way she drew out try. I was like, whoa, like, that's like, she's absolutely right. The only she can control, she can help me with many things, but she can't control if I just put in the hours every day. And I remember like after that, for some reason, it became very easy for me to like wake up super early in the morning and just like put in the hours every single day. And I don't know. I, I've kind of, it was, sounds like simple advice, but it's some of the best advice I've gotten in recent years. Oh, nice. Well, I mean, no, nobody loves the word try because you, when, when you say try your best, it, it means like, oh, you're not going to put in 1000% of effort in it rather than you're just going to put in probably 88, 99% and that's it. Right. So, wow. I, I, I I love what she has mentioned and I'm pretty sure she's still around. She's still alive. Oh, very right? much so. Yeah. She's still around. She's still coaching. She's great. She's a, you know, a super important person for me. Um, and nice. it was, and I would actually say, let's take a step back. Like one of the things that I, I, I didn't realize until later in my career was the value of coaches, even for people who are like writers, like not athletes, you know, um, I benefited so much from the, from the things that she said, from what she did, from the way she helped me. And I think coaching is different than therapy. It's different than counseling. It's different than yeah. some of the other things that are out there. And I, I mean, I, I can only speak for me, but like coaching helped me level up my kind of career and my, and my life in some very big ways. And it's the kind of thing that's like, again it's different it's action oriented it's a little bit different than traditional forms of therapy and like it's just one of these things like i owe so much to her and i would recommend coaching for a certain kind of person it's like an ideal way to get some perspective to get some feedback to set goals to like execute against those goals um i mean coaching for 
for me has been phenomenal and for friends I know has been phenomenal. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I agree. Nice, nice, nice. I, I love it. I love it. And uh, wow, I, I'm, that's why, you know, at, at the end of your, your book, um, instead of writing acknowledgements, you actually wrote that, right? And I'm pretty sure she's one of one of them that you actually wrote there. And uh, I was like, wow, I, it's a very interesting way of writing because usually people write acknowledgements. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you to my wife, to my coach or whoever who supported me during the journey. But yours is pretty interesting. Yours is dapped. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, which, and, which is... and that was also, that was partly, I was just trying to be, you know, it's a, it's a book about finance. It's a book about payment systems. Debts is a little mm -hmm. bit like more on brand for that. Um, but it's also like, I just wanted to do something a little different and I do write about her and several other people who helped me along the way. Um, the one thing to know about books is, you know, people think books are just like the author working in a room alone, but books are really team sports. Like there's a lot of people who work to make a book successful. And that's a big part of uh, like why there are publishers. It's because it takes more than one person to do a book. Um, not all books, but a lot of, you know, a lot of books. And so that to me, it was like a chance to debts was a chance to be like, I owe these people a debt. Like I actually like <laughs> am in their debt for what they did. And I want to do more than right. acknowledge it. I want to acknowledge it as a debt. <laughs> okay. Nice. 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 Yeah. That's, that's what I actually saw on one of the, uh, podcasts that you appeared on and you were actually mentioning about this, about the debt as well. And at the earlier part of the podcast where he actually asked you this as well. And, uh, you know, to the main focus of our interview, I, I would like to actually uh, ask you to talk a bit about your book, The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Uh, FYI, before before I ask you the question, you guys should go and check it out on um, Amazon, eBay, and, and all these amazing uh, platforms or even Kinokuniya, popular bookstores in Singapore or Barnes and & Nobles in America and all, all the other parts that have all this, go and buy this book. This is really a great book, especially for entrepreneurs or startup founders who want to excel in their business, want to learn the pitfalls and, and the good things and bad things of, uh, you know, building your business up. You should read this biography of PayPal and the people that's surrounding this um, PayPal and sh those of them who shaped Silicon Valley. Uh, I'd like to ask you, right, uh, what actually made you want to tell the story of PayPal? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, so my last book before this one was about Claude Shannon. He yeah. was a 20th century uh, mathematician and engineer. And you know he was sort of like Einstein, but not as famous. And he, one of the places he worked in his life was Bell Laboratories. And Bell Labs in the, in the United States... You know, it, it won something like seven Nobel Prizes. They invent the transistor. They invent touchtone dialing. They invent satellite technology. They invent communications networks. I mean, so much of modern life traces back to Bell Labs. I started to think, like, what are other concentrations of talent that are like Bell Labs? So, you know, there's like the classic story of startups is like the story of one founder. You know, it's like Meta and Mark Zuckerberg, Microsoft, Bill Gates, Apple, Steve, you know, that's sort of like very classic thing. But I started to think like, what are other places where there was like groups of people who were amazing? And one of those places is PayPal in the, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, because you have all these amazing, hundreds of amazing people who work there. And 
I just couldn't understand like why no one had gone back and like interviewed those people and talked to them about PayPal and sort of written up that whole experience. And it just like was an idea that continued to rattle around in my mind because the truth is like companies are rarely one individual building something on their own. Like these big tech companies tend to have very interesting origin stories. And I just got the sense that like there was something missing that like somebody needed to go and do this. And I just started asking like around and asking questions. And then I got introduced to Peter Thiel and I asked him like why, you know, someone should do this. Would you be willing to be interviewed? He agreed. More people agreed. And that's how the book started. But the real origin story interest was this idea that like clusters or groups of talent are, are interesting. Why do they form? What, how do people get there? What do they learn along the way? How does it affect their career? And in the case of PayPal, you know, you have some of the biggest entrepreneurs in our time who worked there uh, or worked right. there, past tense. And so that was what motivated me to dive in uh, and to really start to think about the story seriously. Oh, nice. Well, I mean, like uh, having to speak with Elon Musk and all these amazing, great entrepreneurs, which is also my dream, you know, to be able to interview Elon Musk. I, I, I hope I can I can be introduced to him one day <laughs> and, uh, you know, to, to be able to speak with him. Man, it's really amazing. And I, I'm just curious, how is it like when you interview Elon Musk, for example? Was he like smoking weed like how he did with Joe Rogan? And oh no, no, just, no, this no. is how it is. <laughs> no, it was, you know, it was really no, nice. He okay. was he was he was really gracious. We were supposed to talk for an hour. We talked for around four hours. Um wow. he was he was really thoughtful. You know, it was the kind of thing um one of the interesting things about interviewing him is that you could tell that he was actually thinking like during the interview. So he wasn't like using scripted points that were in his head that he had said a million times before. And I found that very refreshing. He was also really honest, like super honest about everything. And I didn't expect that, you know, you never know how people are going to be. I'm also asking him about a company that wasn't like, it didn't become what he wanted it to become. And he also didn't exactly get out of it what he necessarily wanted in terms of like this world beating financial system. Cause his conception of the company was a little bit bigger than some of the other people. And so I just like really was impressed by him as somebody who very thoughtful, very learned about history. We were talking about various little you know nuggets from history. He knew about Claude Shannon. He knew about information theory. Like he's a, a you know, brilliant guy, but mostly what was impressive about the interview was just the degree of honesty in the conversation and the fact that he would like, he was taking time he doesn't have to explain this part of his past to somebody. Um, it was a really, it was really amazing. Um, it was like one of those things where like, I was grateful to get that kind of time because it let me tell this part of his past, I think in an honest way. Wow. Awesome. I mean, you know, uh, uh a multi-millionaire back then or even now a current billionaire is able to give you his time to go up to the attic to dig out the old documents to talk to you uh, which i read from the, the book and, and you guys should actually read this and it's, it's truly amazing um uh, you know it's not easy uh i would say no uh i mean it it it, it takes a lot of a lot of um, humility to actually speak with speak with uh, you and and to let you uh, I would say unearth a lot of golden nuggets from him 
and, and especially the rich history when he had with PayPal, which he didn't really talk much to the journalists or, or you know, you know uh, national TV. I don't think he spoke a lot about it, even though he, he talked quite a fair bit about X.com, which he actually uh, f- founded in a sense. And uh, yeah, I, I truly uh, love that uh, moment when you actually were able to sit down in his house and go and you know have a quick chat with him and, and just wondering how did you get elon musk and all the others to actually be um you know sharing all this very nitty bitsy kind of uh details to you yeah it was it was a long process like it was actually the the part of it that was hardest and the reason the book took as long as it did is because I had to earn trust over a period of several years to get the access to, to do the book and to do the interviews. So what happened is that, you know, I met one person and that one person introduced me to one other person. And then that person introduced me to maybe like two other people. And then that those two people introduced me to like three other people. And from there, I basically just like branched out and talked to all the alumni and then Uh, Once I had spoken to the like several people, then they made new introductions and then it became okay for me to cold email because I would cold email and inevitably like someone would like forward it to somebody like, oh, yeah, I've talked to Jimmy. You should you know, he's doing this crazy PayPal project and you should just talk (laughs) to him. And so that's kind of how it happened is it was like person to person, interview to interview, uh, very manual, you know, very like I would say at times like it was very anxiety inducing because you don't know if someone's Mm going to say no. Like you're like, when's the first no going to come? But luckily like nobody said no. And I just would patiently go through and try to interview more employees and more employees and more employees. And over time that just like built up to hundreds of interviews. And it was one of these things that like, I, I was really, I think I caught people at the right time. 20 years had passed since PayPal's creation People were pretty open to speaking to me. This was a big part of their lives, but it was in their past. And so it was the kind of thing that like, I think I just like struck at the exact right time. And then I also was just very patient about giving people like second and third and fourth chances to speak to me. And like that, that work too was just like, okay, I'll keep emailing. I'll be really nice. Like, okay, okay. And then finally people just like agree to it. And that was, you know, some of that was just, I bet luck, but that was how I did it. I just went each person, person to person. Wow, amazing. I mean, back then, we do not have um, social media. We only have emails, Yahoo Mail and Gmail probably. And and man, having all these um, you know, interviews, getting all these interviews is not easy as well. And, and I, wow, kudos kudos to you. I mean, if, if it's me, I, I, I might have given up already. But uh, I almost okay, did. But... I almost did give up a bunch of times. Like it was one of those books <laughs> where like I kept thinking, that at some point I'm just going to have to abandon this project because it's not going to come together or something crazy is going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember like having that experience a bunch of times, but it was also like, I kind of knew that once you get to a certain level, enough people say yes, more people say yes, then more people say yes. Then the people who said no say yes. Right. Uh, and I just kept trying. I just like kept knocking on every door and emailing every person and seeing if they would speak to me. And that's kind of how it came to be. Hmm, okay, cool. And I'm uh, just curious, would you ever think that the founders will be on the cinemas? Like how Blackberry, which is coming soon as well, and all the other uh, 
previous um, kind of uh, movies that talk about McDonald's or even talk about other tech companies and all. Do you think this will be ever have a chance to be on the screens? I hope so. Um, there's a group of producers in Hollywood who are working on adapting it for screens because it obviously has like a very, you know, there's a lot of narrative and stuff. Yeah. I, I will say though, you know, it's one of those things like there's a million good ideas for shows and TVs and movies. And I mean, I don't, you know, Hollywood has a very, you know, it do, you don't, not much seems to get made in general. And so I hope that someone creates something, but it's hard to know if they will or how they will. Um, and you know, I, and for me, I'm a, I'm an author. Like I do books, like movies are great and I love movies, but they're not my particular genre. And so I'm hopeful that someone takes it and runs with it, but I can't be sure. Okay. Well, let's, let's hope for the best. Hopefully probably, you know, um, end of this year, someone's just, uh, knock onto your doorstep and say, Hey, we want to bring this to Hollywood and get this on Netflix or whatsoever and see how you guys can actually do this together and, and well uh, i'm really stoked for that i'm really stoked for that knowing that you know there are some producers who are already discussing on this idea um, amazing amazing and i just want want to ask you right are any of the founders still involved in the company you know so far as i know they're not there are a couple of people who played various contractor roles recently from the original alumni employee group of around you know 220 in palo alto roughly 600 in omaha and there are a handful of people who like stayed at the company for eight but they weren't like the original founders um you know it's just it's been so long like it's been 20 years and so there's not really that level of like oh we're still involved we still you know they still care they still see this as a big high point in their careers they value the fact that they work there but they're not actively involved day to day in fact they've gone on to do so many other things that like paypal's kind of a distant memory it's really funny because sometimes when i would sit down to interview these people they would say like boy like you're this is like ancient history like this is like so far in the past i can't even believe anybody would be interested <laughs> Uh, kind of giving me some grief about it. But I I think that, that, so there's not, the answer to your question is no. So far as I know, they're not involved. Um, but again, I, you know, my focus was not on PayPal 2023 or 2022. It was really PayPal from 1998 to 2002. Mm, yeah, I understand, I understand. Oh, interesting. And, and to be honest, before reading your book, I have no idea that Elon Musk was part of PayPal. I thought he was doing something else. I didn't really watch much of his uh, uh, videos or anything like that about him. So I, I have no clue until when I read your book, I was like, oh, interesting. He, he was part of PayPal. And I've been using PayPal whenever I, I'm uh, <laughs> paying, doing some payments. And uh, oh, interesting. And I, I, I'd like to ask you, right, you know, after interviewing all this, entrepreneurs about PayPal and all, what did you actually personally learn about Silicon Valley? You know, oh my God, I mean, we could do a, just an hour just on this, but I'll do the quick version because I know we're going to come up against time. Um, sure. I, I would say there were a few surprising things about Silicon Valley that I learned. I'll share one kind of general one and then one specific one. The general sure. one is, you know, it's, it's this really interesting place within economic life where you you anybody can really be successful there meaning you you don't actually like have to have any kind of specific like qualifications degree training education 
a lot of the people I met, PayPal was their first job out of college, right? It requires a certain level of hunger and discipline and like a desire to win and like do well. But I would say it's like this rare place in American life where you really can kind of go to work in this industry without any experience and do very, very well, right? It's, it's unique in, in economic life, I think, around the world in that like you can truly like go there without much and become something and go very far. That's kind of the general point. The specific okay. interesting thing that I found that at least I found interesting I had this experience where I would talk to the people who founded the company and they would offer to make an introduction and they would make introductions very, very fast. And it was really interesting because it was one of these things where like, it's almost like Silicon Valley, like the oil in Silicon Valley's engine is introductions to people. I was like always astonished at the speed with which introductions were made. And it was like different than other places or industries I've worked in. Like it was literally like if somebody said, oh, I'll introduce you to Dave, like the email would come like the next minute. And it was just two quick lines like Jimmy, per our discussion, Ooh. introducing you to Dave. And then Dave, this is Jimmy. He's writing a book about PayPal. Well, that was it. And it was so fast. And I realized <laughs> okay. it's actually like part of the part of what makes the place what it is, is this willingness to like link people who are working on like minded things. Right. Or sorry, to link like minded people who might be working on the same things. And I didn't know I didn't, I didn't have any exposure to this until I got there. Now it's one thing, like it's like everybody introduces people. What I'm saying is the speed and like the velocity, like the velocity of these introductions was just so, so fast. I found that very interesting. It was one of the play, it was one of the things that most intrigued me about Silicon Valley. Wow. Interesting. Oh, I, I've not been to Silicon Valley uh, and I would love to, uh, you know, go and check it out and, and see how, how things are and probably interview some people from there as well. But uh, wow, hearing from this, I was like, wow, they are really fast. They, that's why I, I'm pretty sure they are they are able to build their companies up them fast is because they, they love speed and time is is something that they really value it. I I believe and you know um, uh, this is actually a question from uh, one of our followers. She actually uh, asked me to ask you this, and and that's what a some of the biggest lessons that you have for millennial founders from the PayPal story? Oh, again, uh, we, we could go all day on just this subject. And there's a lot of lessons that are packed in the book. Um, let me pick a couple that are, I think, stand out to me. One is that um, there's, a, there's a kind of talent network that exists at one startup that can like extend to future ventures. So the, part of the reason the PayPal group is famous is because they become referred to as the PayPal mafia. And that's like the yep. shorthand that's used to refer to some of these people. Now, some people in the group like that name. Some people don't like that name. You know, it's, that's neither here nor there. What is interesting to me is how many of these people continued to work together after PayPal. And that is really interesting. Like they invested in one another, they worked together, they built startups together, they co-founded startups together. YouTube, co-founded by PayPal alumni. Yelp, co-founded by PayPal alumni. You know, all these things. And so I, I find that very interesting that like you would keep working with people after you do this one particular startup experience. So for founders who are like working with other people, 
you know, one of the things to appreciate might be that like these could be the people that you work with for the rest of your life and to be very, you know, choosy and careful and also thoughtful about how you how you structure those relationships, because the relationships could well outlast your first startup, because that was kind of what the PayPal network did after PayPal. Right. That's kind of one lesson. More specifically, I think that um, one of the things that PayPal did incredibly well was that it had the right attitude toward experience. Uh, here's what I mean. It did not simply say that if you are experienced, you are bad, right? Like it's not, it wasn't like, oh, you have had X number of years in financial services and we don't trust you as a result. It also didn't say like, we only hire people who have 20 years in financial services, right? They found this right. interesting middle ground, which is they found plenty of inexperienced people who could learn very fast, right? Classic kind of startup stuff. They also found people who had experience, but part of what their experience had done is that it made them very um, critical of the industry. It had made them like almost like like they were like, oh, like I've been working here and there's so many things I would change. Right. So they were very skeptical of their own industry, despite having experience. And they had not grown complacent about that skepticism. They, they knew there were areas for improvement. I'm thinking of two people in particular, Todd Pearson and Sanjay Bhargava, who both came out of financial services and went to PayPal. They were both experienced, but at PayPal, there, no one held that experience against them because they had maintained this kind of healthy skepticism about their industry. And I would say that that's a pretty good attitude toward, like, the, you know, toward experience. And it's an interesting nuanced attitude toward experience. Because I think the tempting thing is to say, oh, we're a startup. We only hire people with no experience because people with experience are bad, you know, or mm -hmm. it's to go the other way to say, we only need experienced people because those are the only people who know anything. PayPal had this very interesting spot in the middle where if you were experienced but skeptical or inexperienced but hungry to learn, you were a great fit. And I found mm -hmm. that that was like, it was, a, it was a more nuanced view of this company than I had seen in other places. And I think it's super important for startup founders who sometimes might have somebody who has like five or 10 years of experience and they're not sure like, should we hire them, et cetera. I think understanding that like experience, if it breeds the right kind of skepticism can actually be a really valuable asset because somebody wants to come in and do the things that you wanna do in changing the industry. Yep, I agree. I mean, like uh, if let's say, you are uh, experienced, but you don't have the fire in you, then it's not not really going to do well for the company. I, I think it not just works for Silicon Valley, but every entrepreneur is uh, also facing this if they want to hire people in, right? And uh, I would like to ask you, right, because I read about um, social capital um, in, in your book that I, I find that it's really interesting that um, PayPal actually uses social capital to actually fuel their growth, right? So how, how does social capital fuel startup growth, in, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it depends on what you mean by social capital. Um, you know, what I would, I mean, again, I'm not super familiar with the, the term. Um, okay. And so you might have to explain, like, what, what do you mean? And then I can kind of respond to it. Um, so maybe we start there. Like, what what is your definition of social capital, so that I'm understanding it correctly? Oh, my definition of social capital is people, and in terms mm -hmm. of like uh, talents and people, um, how how they actually help to grow the startup industry, in in a sense. Yeah, and I think this for PayPal, this operates in two ways. One is like the obvious way, which is they were just it was 
here's the here's the act here's the answer that comes to mind for me, which is PayPal was hiring in Silicon Valley early on at a time when it was really, really hard to recruit people because there were so many startups, there was so much venture capital, there was so much growth. And so social capital was the only way that they could hire people. There's this great line in the book where David Sachs says, we had to hire our friends because no one else would work for us, right? And so they use every bit of social capital they have to recruit people because it's the only people they could recruit because they weren't successful. They weren't Google, they weren't Yahoo, right? They were a very tiny Mm -hmm. startup with a very specific kind of product. So it takes a lot of social capital to recruit. And then I would say as the company grows, that social capital becomes even more important because there are all of these other people across their networks who they end up bringing into the fold. It was like one of the things that was most interesting in this story was how many, how much of the engineering team came from the University of Illinois. So we tend to think yeah. like, oh, it's a Silicon Valley startup, Stanford, 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 you know, everybody's from the West Coast. But actually, like the, the sort of iron core of this company uh, from the engineering side comes from the University of Illinois. And so that was pure social. It was like, it was like just people who knew people who knew people. And that network hiring is a big part of what makes the company successful. Mm, well, love it, love it. I, I, I agree, man. I mean, like, this is what I read from your book as well, like how they actually had different networks of people that they know and then they think that, hey, I need you, I need you to help and come on, on board. And that's, that's how they actually grow their company bit by bit. And I believe uh, this is how companies... Um, in Silicon Valley, especially uh, during that point of time, also grow their company in, in in that form. And I would like to ask you, right, because I, I saw a video of you on YouTube talking about this thing, which Elon Musk and Peter Thiel managed to convince you that this is a superpower. And this superpower, in fact, is obsession. But uh, uh Guys and girls, take note, it's not obsessive compulsive disorder, but just obsession itself, all right? So uh, I would like to ask you, right, how did they actually convince you that obsession is a superpower? Yeah, I would I would say it's actually more Elon and Max Levchin who who showed me the oh. virtues of this. And, and again, people can find, you know, look, I, here's what I would say. Like, you can find productive obsessiveness in Kobe Bryant. You can find productive obsessiveness yeah. in Michael Jordan. You can find productive obsessiveness in Taylor Swift. You could find productive obsessiveness in like in in the films of James Cameron. I just happen to be looking at these two very specific tech entrepreneurs, Elon Musk and Max Levchin. And one of the things that I think that I discovered or learned just to just sort of hearing stories and watching it is, you know, it really it, it really is like, I think we tend to say the word obsessive and it has this like negative attached to it, right? Like, oh, this person's so obsessed, right? But I, mm-hmm. I actually like watched that obsessiveness lead to success, lead to inspiration for the people around them who work for them. You know, if your boss is working late and staying long and putting in a lot of hours and really struggling you feel more motivated to do that than if that person was going home at six and expected you to stay, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's the simple way. I would say the other thing that happens is like, it, it is a great human achievement to be able to throw yourself completely into something, right? And to just like right. give all of yourself to something. And I see that in Elon and his approach to SpaceX, for example, and I saw yeah. that with Max Levchin and his approach to the early days of PayPal, where like this was the 
whole of his life. Like the startup became everything. And, and I, I, I think that there's like a temptation to say like, oh, you know, that's really bad or whatever. But it's actually like, what if, what if this person is doing exactly what they are called to do? Right. What if they are right. engaging every bit of themselves into something that really matters to them? Right. And that's why I, I mentioned at the top that it can be anything. It can be films. It can be uh, parenting. Like you, it could be anything. But I don't think that we should. You know, I think there's a certain kind of person for whom saying like you should be really balanced or like you should have more work life balance is just <laughs> it just is not actually what that person needs. Right. Like what they need right. is to be totally consumed by an idea or a project or a startup or something. And I found their level of like obsessiveness really inspiring. Like they were so driven to succeed that they pushed themselves. They pushed the people around them. They, you know, they, they wanted it so much that they would stay late. They would work extra hours. And it was just the default. There was like nothing else. There was no alternative version of their lives. Right. And, right. and I think that the challenge is that sometimes in our, in our world, we look at someone like that and we think that there's something must be broken, right? That we, we think like, oh, they are this way because they are, there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. I disagree. There are some people for whom this kind of obsessiveness is actually like exactly who they are. It's like, it's cut to fit who they are. And I think mm -hmm. there's that amazing things emerge from this. If someone needs another example, if you look at like Apple and the design sensibilities and the obsessiveness of Steve jobs, especially in Apple's earliest days when there wasn't a big yeah. team, like there, we, we benefit so much from the fruits of that obsessiveness. Right. And like that desire for this per perfect ideal of a thing, right? Whether it's like the rounded right. corners on the iPhone or whatever, like mm -hmm. we should celebrate that more. Like we should celebrate more the idea that maybe, just maybe, this person is not like someone that needs help. They just need encouragement. They just need to be told like, this is totally okay. And you are allowed to like be this fully all in on this idea. Yeah, I agree, man. It's just like the... Um... I would say modern day version of Thomas Edison, Isaac Newton, who actually believed that there's such a thing called gravity and light. And look at look at their obsession. Because of their obsession, we actually have all this. And I, I believe this was also the reason why PayPal became so successful, right? Because of the obsession to actually make it work and make it succeed. Yeah, and I and it's also it's it's applicable across disciplines and to just people in their living their lives. You know, like if you're if you find I hope people find this kind of work. I hope they find the thing that they are supposed to do. I've experienced it. I've experienced it with books. I become really obsessed, right? And people might look at it and be like, "Oh, you're spending every Friday and Saturday and Sunday night working on you work on it on holidays. You don't, you know." But like these are the happiest times I have, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, it's actually perfect for me. And I just, I wanted, I, I, I saw that level of focus in these two individuals and it was focused directed at making these companies and the other things they've done successful. And I think we should celebrate that. I think that is actually the kind of thing that needs yep. to be encouraged. Yep. I agree. And, 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 why, why don't people, you know, celebrate such obsession and how can we actually appreciate this superpower? <laughs> and because it's very hard to be, <laughs> because it's very hard to be around. I say this to somebody who's like, this is like personal, but it's hard to be around someone who is like that. 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have to pick your friends very carefully. A lot of my friends are like artists who go into their little obsessive creative modes. A lot of my friends are writers or, or entrepreneurs who go into like their thing for like long stretches of time because it's not a normal mm -hmm. way to live, right? Like if you're working right. seven days a week, if you're if you're doing what other people call work seven days a week and you're just like that, that's your thing. That's not the easiest person to be friends with, right? Or to like be around. Mm -hmm. I mean, my <laughs> friends will tell you, like I was a weird person when I was working on PayPal, the book, uh, the founders, the book. And and that's why that it's because it's it's a little, you know, it's it's not interesting to talk to that person about the weather. They don't care. Like I just didn't yeah. care. Right. Um, like, like normal things that other people do are just not that. Like I, I, I once had a friend who had a book that was about to come out that had some material in it that I needed. He got a copy of the book and I canceled my birthday party plans to go get this book and then bring it home to read it while doing the founders. Right. <laughs> and so like, like crap. and I was like, I didn't think, I didn't think twice about it. I was like, of course I'm going to do this. You know, this is like exactly what I'm going to do. Um, <laughs> and, and like people are like, okay, that's Whoa. a little weird. But like for me at that time in my life, it was perfect. And so I think that's, mm -hmm. and by the way, there's also seasons for this. Like after I finished the founders, I was not in a new obsessive mode about a book. I took some time to like, let, you know, your mind kind of, figure some other things out and just recharge your batteries. But I don't think we should look down on the quality of obsessiveness. I think we should actually say, look, if you desire to be that good at whatever your thing is, more power to you. Mm, right. I agree, man. I mean, uh, look at the late Kobe Bryant or even uh, look at Beyonce, uh, Shakira and and even yourself, like man, you look look at this amazing book that you have actually written, man. It's 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 all because of your obsessive kind of uh, desire to actually get this out and get this be that in a sense perfect for yourself and and make it one of the best that you can ever give to the public to let them read and to. To let your followers enjoy reading this book and your family, your friends, and all, man. Because of this, that's why you know we should celebrate such obsession and not just you know uh, discount it or say that this person is obsessive compulsive <laughs> and all this other stuff. And yeah, I'd like to um, you know ask you right then, what's next after this book? Because I'm pretty sure. You have plans for yourself after this, right? Like uh, a new book or, or, or something else like that? Yeah, I've got, you know, I spent a lot of time last year, honestly, just um, a big part of what I did was just like I, I have a seven-year-old. So I just enjoyed spending time with my my daughter and did things with her and took trips and all the rest. You sort of don't get that much of a window where your kids think you're cool. And so I wanted to take full <laughs> advantage of that. Um <laughs> And then okay. I've kind of started on two different book projects, you know, and I'll share details with you about those later. But I, at this point, it's kind of like, I'm ready to get obsessed again. I'm ready to find something that I want to oh. throw myself into and mm -hmm. really drive to, a, to, you know, a standard of quality. And so for me, it's, it's back to, back to being a little bit of a monk, uh, maybe not as much. Um, <laughs> and back to just kind of trying to write these things that I hope speak to people that I hope like, connect with people and that I hope reach audiences way beyond like, you know, the United States. And so that's what it is for me. It's like back to that thing. And I'll, you know, and I'll, I'm like, it's, it's funny too. Cause if you were to talk to people, they're like, 
they're like, they thought I was a little weird. Like my friends, like during the founders process, but they're like, after this year, they're like, dude, you really do need something to do. <laughs> like you need, you need something that you got to get obsessed with. Cause otherwise it's like, you become really weird. <laughs> so I think they're excited for me to like have a new project. Well, I'm excited for your new project as well. And I can't wait to hear more about it later on. And, uh, as we are coming to the end of the podcast, I would like to ask you this one last question. And that is this, Jimmy, imagine this, you suddenly lose everything, okay, your money, your reputation. What would you do from day one to day 30 to save yourself? Mm, that's a great question. Um, it's not anything I've thought of before. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I, my parents are immigrants to the United States and they came to the United States with nothing, like no money, no reputation, nothing. Right. And like my mom, like bagged groceries when I was going up, right. And worked like the cashier cash register at different stores and stuff. And, and my dad was an engineer, but kind of a mid-level engineer at a bunch of job transitions and various things happen. And, and, you know, it's sort of interesting because like I've lived sort of what you've described, like in different little ways. And the thing that they taught me was just, was honestly just like getting up, finding whatever work you can and doing it incredibly well and then pushing forward. And so, you know, if I've lost everything I have financially, what I would do is get up the next day, find something to do that someone would pay me for, do it exceptionally well, and then just continue and rinse and repeat for 30 days. And I don't know that that's like big life advice, but I think it's certainly like if you've lost everything, it doesn't help to like meditate, you know, <laughs> like you, you gotta, you should just get up and get to work, yeah. you know, and like get up and hustle. And I remember like, it's like, I saw my parents work Saturdays and Sundays. I saw them work evenings, weekends, not, whatever it took. Right. And still they had two kids and like, we're in an unfamiliar place, but they just worked really, really, really hard. And I would just, my, my honest answer to your question is if that happened, I would get up the next day and I would find a job and I would work really, really hard at it, whatever that job was. Right. And I would try to do it as and save as much money as I could, really be disciplined. That's like the thing that I know is how to how to grind through it. And that's probably what I would do. Wow, awesome, awesome. I mean, like uh damn, this is what uh, I think I will also do as well. Uh, if I were to be, you know, losing my money, my reputation, and damn, it's it sucks, you know, to to be able to find your google your name and then you you are ranked top for the bad stuff that you've done right <laughs> but yeah i mean oh, just get up and oh, work awesome yep just, just get, get up, up and work. work wow thank you so much you know you have actually shared so much of valuable bombs in this podcast episode and i really enjoyed our conversation and i'm pretty sure people that are tuning in are also enjoying this conversation that we had so uh, Jimmy, where can we find you on social media? Yeah, I'm probably most active on Twitter where I'm at Jimmy A. Sony. Um, I mean, immediately I'm not at the most active person on social media. I like it's I have a love hate relationship with it. And I'm not as like, okay. I, I, you know, books are like about going away for, for me for many years, just writing things and researching. But on Twitter, I do love engaging with readers. And so if people are reading the book and enjoy it, or if they just want to drop me a line, I'm just at Jimmy A. Sony. And then my website is jimmysony.com. And I do a lot of speaking around the country. So if somebody wants to work with me on that, I'd, I'd love to. Um, but yeah, that's me. I'm, you know, find me on Twitter and then we'll go from there. 
All right. Okay. And of course, for those of you who are tuning in, remember to buy The Founders. Okay. The story of PayPal and entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley by Jimmy Sunny. This is amazing uh, book that you guys can actually, uh, you know, get and read and, you know, get inspired by the stories from all these people. And with that, I would like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in. And thank you, Jimmy, once again. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode of the Rexley Show. And we're going to have a lot of amazing guests that's coming on board as well. So that, take care and see you again real soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of The Regacy Show. I hope it has enlightened you. I hope it has brought you to an epiphany where you realize that this is where you want to go and this is what you want to do. So I hope you will continue to support and also at the same time, like, comment and share this episode out to your people. To your family your friends and not forgetting that we have just created a telegram group it's called the Regacy show family so you can go and check it out and let us know how you find this group is serving you all right so with that i would like to thank you once again see you and stay tuned for another episode of the Regacy show